This morning, we're going to continue, and as we continue in our Word, we're going to do something that is uh, a, a bit of an initiative I'll be taking over the next while. Uh, we recognize within our congregation that we have uh, six individuals, young people, who feel God's call upon them in ministry. Uh, they feel called to anywhere from be youth pastors to being pastors, uh, worship leaders, missionaries, all those sorts of things. Uh, we had a first meeting of those called at my house here a couple of weeks ago and got to hear their stories, and myself and our pastoral team sat around and got to talk and encourage and just share in those things. But, you know, one of the things that's needed to be done in that is, is that we need to be a church who is growing our new ministers. Amen? And in doing that, one of the things that's one of the most intimidating things to do is to stand up in front of people and speak. And I know that seems odd for me because I've been doing it for 20-something years now, you know. But I have to remember what it was like to be 15 years old, walking up for my very first sermon on a Sunday night. I told them everything I knew about the Bible, and it took me seven and a half minutes. That was it, you know. And that was my first sermon, and I walked down, and it was awful, and people told me how wonderful I was. It was That's just the, the, the core of it. So one of the things that we wanted to do is starting to get our young people, especially those who feel called into ministry, to do things that are in that education process and that experience process. And so this morning, one of ours who has felt a call to be a pastor upon his life is going to be reading in our 9 o'clock service. Miss Neely Mitchell will be reading. She's felt God's call to be a missionary in our 10 o'clock service. But I'd like to invite Trace Mitchell to the platform. And uh, he's going to read the passage for us this morning. Trace, my only question for you is, would you like to read from the screen? Or you have nothing in your hand, so I guess you're going to be reading. Unless you memorized it. You didn't memorize it. Okay, all right, all right. We'll let Trace read for us. If you would stand for the reading of the Word this morning. This is coming from Matthew chapter 14. And uh, yeah, Trace, if you'll, if you'll read as we go along. When Jesus... You're good. When Jesus learned what happened, he withdrew by boat priv privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot. From the towns, when Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd. He had compassion on them, and he healed, it, healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and sent the crowds away so they can go to the village and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. When we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered, bring them here to me. And he said, and he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking five loaves of bread and two fish and looked up to heaven. He gave, the, he gave thanks and broke the loaves, then gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over the number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. Awesome. Stay right here with me. Let's pray together. God, we come before you this morning thanking you for who you are, thanking you for the stories that you give us and for the young lives that you have called to be telling those stories for the decades to follow. God, we pray this morning that you would speak to us through your words. And in your son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thanks, Trace. I enter this passage with a little bit of 
heightened level of concern, I should say. The reason is I've learned a couple of lessons since being a lead pastor. I share with you fairly often that I spent about 15 years in youth ministry before moving here. I'm closer to having completed nine years than I am beginning nine years. I'm probably three months away from celebrating being at Erin Church of the Nazarene uh, for nine years here, which has been an incredible, incredible opportunity, incredible experience. And I, I look back and see the things that I've learned. One of the things I look back, as a matter of fact, I even went back into my uh, kind of log of communications in order to read. I remember preaching this passage a long time ago. And when I preached this passage, I had someone who reached out to me after the sermon. Uh, as a matter of fact, in reaching out after the sermon, they were quite frustrated, uh, so much so that they no longer attended ECN after that Sunday. will be just that real. So this sermon has been one that when it comes back around, I thought, you know, I need to make sure. Now, I want to be very careful in saying this. Many of you, sometimes we have trouble understanding that critics can be our best learning opportunities. Good critics, by the way, but critics... And the, the thing that was called into question was very unfortunate as I look back at both the message as well as the messages that took place between myself and this person. And the problem was they felt that by representing this text, I had misrepresented and in some ways had negated the miracles of Jesus. We'll cover that part of the conversation here in a little bit, but it was a, a lesson learned that when we go into the text and we speak about things, to be careful, to be attentive to how we speak, but it was also one that has been proven time and time again. If it is my responsibility on the side of the preacher, the one delivering the message, to be very intentional about how I speak, how I say things, I communicate things effectively, it's also a responsibility on your part to hear a message as a whole, because this message specifically was one that this person, as I used the analogy in the past, jumped off the train and never came back. They heard one small section and never allowed their brain to see what lines were being connected and what message was being communicated. They heard one phrase, very uh, modern day way of looking at media. Amen? But one phrase defines everything. And unfortunately, that's how this, how this ended. Uh, I'll say another lesson I've learned that also speaks to the nature of this passage is that of the things I've learned that were very surprising to me, the things that, that have been very and still very eye-opening to me, uh, not just in, in being intentional in how I preach, but it is in interacting with people as a pastor and in seeing how they, how they move through difficult things. You probably wouldn't know this about me, but in my life, I moved here with all four of my grandparents still alive. All of my aunts and uncles still alive. And you could say I had not experienced any level of like real loss. I had one football colleague who died in a car crash when I was a uh, high schooler. I had one uh, individual who died in a car crash who sat two or three seats behind me in the fourth grade. But as far as like my own family and those sorts of things, I was really watching and learning about what it meant to mourn while I was pastoring early on because I'd not experienced that in my own way. And one of the things that amazed me was ministering to specifically to widows. I noticed this specifically in the widow's life. Oftentimes when I would be at a funeral or preparing for a funeral, I can remember talking to the widow and, and, and wanting to work and make sure that we created, crafted a service that would honor their loved one and then me working to craft a sermon that would be uh, a bit uplifting or a bit guiding in that time of loss. But one of the things that just kept jumping out at me, and it still does this day, is it's amazing to me how when someone who loses their spouse, especially a woman losing her spouse, I mean, you look at today's statistics and the average age is somewhere around 78. 
most of the people who were uh, from who are who are in that you know say 80 years old range, a lot of them got married somewhere around 20. So let's just use the getting married at 20 years old and then your spouse passing away at 80. I mean, you're talking 75% of their life has been spent with that person in their home. You understand? Like it's a massive. They were not even a really adults fully when they got married. All of that taking place, and now they've lost that portion of them in what you would think to be something that would absolutely wipe them out. It's difficult, and I'm not taking away from whatsoever. What I want to say is the surprise I've had in the conversations with a widow asking them about a service, and they'll say things like, I just want to make sure that we create a service that speaks to all of my family. I want to make sure we create a service that celebrates my loved one and, and also you know, like is meaningful to my family who's here. And then after the service is over with, I can't tell you how many times... It is the widow who comes to me and talks about how uh, you know, they want to make sure that their family was treated well. Not treated well, but, but experienced God in a real way. And they leave from that and they go back to their homes. And while they're the one who should be the greatest in mourning, they're running around serving everybody around them. They're making sure everybody's had something to eat, filling tea glasses, all sorts of things. Like I see that in widows time and time again. And it's such an encouraging thing to me. And it's an encouraging thing to me, especially in reflection of our passage this morning. Look back at Matthew 14 for just a moment. In verse 13, right here on the screen in front of you, we read these words, When Jesus heard what happened, He withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Now you need to look at this. You hear me say this often on Sundays. Look at this in its context. Why is he withdrawing and what had happened? If you're in Matthew 14 right now, all it takes is a simple scroll up, flip of a page, or looking a little bit higher. Matter of fact, Jesus had just experienced something or had just found out about something that his cousin had experienced. That is John the Baptist dying. He's in a place right now where there's a great sense of, of mourning and heartache. As a matter of fact, do you remember how John the Baptist died? Folks, a king was played by a younger woman at a party, and she asked for John the Baptist to be killed because her mama wanted it to happen. It's, it's a story of absolute horrible, horrible story, right? And that's how he dies. You think with me for just a moment about Jesus hearing about this and him withdrawing to a solitary place. Folks, he's needing to get away to mourn because I'm going to tell you what, when he recognizes the, the way that John the Baptist was beheaded, the way that he was killed, the way that this all took place, it also has to throw into an immediate reality in his world of what his future looks like. It's, it's both the loss of one and realizing that, folks, things are getting real. And so you picture him withdrawing to a solitary place by boat, which may sound very easy for you because when you think about our world right here, especially in relationship to Kentucky Lake, many of you think about how desolate, how, how wide open it is. Uh, there's not many places. I mean, yes, you find places on the lake that there are houses piled up and, and a good bit of people. But in most sections of that lake, if you go straight across the lake, you're just emptying off into, into natural forests, like huge amounts of trees and those sorts of things. I need you to picture where Jesus is for a moment. In Galilee that we read about during Jesus' time, according to Josephus, which is a historian we go back to time and time again, Galilee is 8 miles by 25 miles. It doesn't take very much to do a little bit of math. That's 200 square miles. To put that in context, Houston County is 207 square miles. Okay, so when you're talking about their area, you're talking about something about the size of our county. Now let me compare this. Houston County at 207 square miles. Anybody remember kind of what our county census is right now? 
about 8,500. You know what I mean? 8,500 people. Let me put this in context of where Jesus is so that you can picture it a little bit better. In that 200 square miles, Josephus also reports that there were 204 towns. 204. Folks, we have a hard way determining like how many little unincorporated areas there are of our county. You understand like how big a contrast we are. 204 towns, and according to Josephus, none of them were less than 15,000. Do the math. 15,000. 200 towns, 3 million. Folks, when you start thinking about Galilee, and there are some when they go back and report, though it may have been only 2.5 million, does it really matter when it's that big? You know what I mean? Like, does that half a million make a big difference? I don't think so in that amount of size. Folks, you're not talking. Matter of fact, to put this in a little bit better contrast here, if you were to search Nashville, Tennessee, they're at 600 square miles with just under 700,000 people. Three times the size, okay? And a fourth the people. Go a little bit close. This actually is more close to picturing something like Chicago at 2.7 miles, 2.27 million people, right? You look at, excuse me, 2.7 million people in 227 square miles. Like this is a very densely populated area. So when Jesus looks for a place to go, you think about going across the water to retreat. But the reality is the, the, the lake that he's going across is eight miles at its furthest point. You can almost see the other side, if not see the other side based on how high you are. Folks, when Jesus leaves to go to a solitary place to try to get away from people because he's learned about John the Baptist and he heads across this water, what do people naturally do? They watch him. And you know the geography of this lake if you live there and you know where he's headed because he's headed straight across. And what do the people do? It's just a walk. They follow. You understand? Like they still want to hear from Jesus. Folks, put yourself in Jesus' shoes here for just a moment as he's showing up on this other side. He's needing a place to get away. He's needing a place to be able to find a solitary place. And the Bible says, as soon as he showed up, who's there to meet him? The crowds. And what do they bring with them? They're sick and they're needy. And the people who are needing things of him. Folks, when I shared with you the story of the widow, I'm here to tell you. The widows I've seen mourning at ECN in the years I've been here have represented Christ at a high level that not many people do. Because even in the times of their mourning and in their sorrow, they're still very concerned about people around them and they're taking care of those loved ones and those other people who are still relying on them. Folks, that's, a, that's an honorable thing. It's a beautiful thing to see happen. I understand that we live in a world today that speaks very confidently and, and quickly about self-care and taking care of yourself and taking time away. And don't hear me saying that you shouldn't do those things, but hear me say that Christ lived out in front of us, that even in the times when he was trying to find a solitary place, there were people that needed him and he was willing to serve. That's impressive. Amen. It's impressive. And it's something that challenges us a bit, maybe to learn to balance the need for self-care and time for ourselves, okay? Learning, and, and balance is always one of the, the difficult things of knowing how to balance that. You, you continue in this story, and, and it gets into the, the, the miracle, the thing that takes place here that just mesmerizes, the reason it's been talked about so many times. As evening approached, it says in verse 15, I'll continue on with the slides there so you can follow along. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy for themselves food. How many of you are, uh, are logistics-based people? How many of you think about all the logistics? How many of you, when you travel, you know where you're going to stop? 
You know where the fuel stops are. You know where the snack places are. You've already found out if there is a Bucky's. That's the new one, isn't it? Yeah, you got to figure out where those are. Stopped at one of those on my way back from visiting my family this past weekend. Had a little bit of time on Friday and Saturday to go hang out with my dad and my brother. And so getting to stop by the, the huge gap, you plan around those sorts of things. Folks, you need to know this morning that when, they're, when we're reading this portion of the passage, the disciples are worried about the logistics of, the, of things. Like Jesus has had all these people show up and it's getting later in the day and the disciples start saying things like, you know, there's got to be a way to take care of these people. Like we, we have to, we have to think about what's going on, and we have to think about how to how to feed them. Like what we should probably do is just go ahead and send them away so that they can go find their own food. Because let's just be honest, that's the easier answer, right? Because the tougher answer is what Jesus says, which is, "You feed them." <laughs> Are you kidding me? Like, think from their perspective here for just a moment. From their perspective. We read that they came to one portion to hear Jesus talk and to bring their sick and, and, and those that needed care, like that you have all that wrapped up in this large group of people who are there. And then as they get there, Jesus in some part of the story hears about the loss of John the Baptist and then goes across in order to get away. And they at some level follow around and show up. Have you ever lost track of time and not planned about where you might have found yourself? How many of you grew up in this neck of the woods creek fishing? Any of you grow up going up down the creeks? Isn't it amazing how while you are fishing, walking up a creek, some of these beautiful clear water streams we have around here, while you are going up the creek, time seems to fly by. And then you turn around to go back home, and you're like 74 miles from the house. You know what I mean? Like, it's what it feels like anyway. You just keep walking. You're just like, we're so far from home. I didn't ever think we made it this far. What in the world is going on? Like, this is ridiculous, right? It's like, how many of you, it may be a little bit more across the board that you would relate to this. How many of you recognize that the drive to your vacation takes half as much time as the drive back home is the way you feel? You know what I mean? Like, the roads to get back to your house from vacation are two and three times as long. It just feels awful. And the reason is when you first leave, you know, you're excited about getting wherever you're going. I mean, imagine with me for just a moment, these individuals who have gone to hear Jesus and now it kind of adapts and things change. Now you're going around the lake and the question is beginning to be asked, were these people prepared for where they find themselves? Like, when they start thinking about what's going to happen and the disciples are saying like, you know, you need to feed them. I think there's also a great point to be noticed here in this process. Planning is sometimes our greatest asset and sometimes our greatest weakness, uh, our greatest illness even. Um, if, if we're not careful, we can outplan God. Because we think about all the steps that need to be taken and sometimes it's more necessary for us to trust Him in the next few steps that He's going to take care of us. The other side of that coin is, and I know uh, in your marriage probably, there's one of you who's the Uber planner and one of you who's the Uber, it's going to work out. You know what I mean? Like it's all going to be fine. And I'm going to tell you what, in my household, more times than not, I'm the it's just going to work out guy. And let me tell you what, when Stephanie's got a plan and I just say it's going to work out, it's not always real comforting, you know? You tell, sometimes it works out. Sometimes, not so much. You know, like there's in the world of trusting God, though, I said earlier about this sense of balance. It's a thing to work through when you are trusting God and also wanting to make sure that you are prepared. And, and just acknowledge in their story, that's where they find themselves, needing to be prepared to take care of these people and not. Now, as we move forward, this is the part, well, where things got a little bit misunderstood when I've preached this in the past. 
Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish is the response. Now, some of you who have read this passage in one of the other four Gospels, when we read that we have only five loaves of bread and two fish, where do these five loaves of bread and two fish come from? Small boy, you remember? Yeah. So you read in some of the other Gospels, get a little bit more information because they, they tell where the actual loaves came from. And then it continues on and, and like how Jesus interacts with this, you know, bring them to me and breaking them apart. And, and one of the things I wanted to, to spend the final minutes of our time together is saying, like recognizing the story, this beautiful imagery that's being given. There's a gift that's used by Jesus and that gift is taken, it is blessed, it is broken, and it is given. All right? It is taken, it is blessed, it is broken, it is given. And I want you to, want you to think for just now, this is the part I need you to prepare. What I'm about to challenge you with is not going to negate, I need to feel the need to say this because of past conversations, I'm not negating the miracles of Jesus. I'm illustrating just how awesome they are. Ask a critical question of yourself for just a moment. How many people were present during this thing taking place? This, this, not the Jesus and the disciples, but we read how many people? 5,000 men. I heard plus. Exactly right. And why is it plus? Because in the accounts we read it's 5,000 men. Conservative estimates would put every man representing at least three total people. More liberal estimates would say between four and five. So let's use the more conservative number and say that each man represents a total of three because the men were what are counted. As a matter of fact, sense of irony here, the boys probably not even in the count of the 5,000. Understand? Not even counted in the 5,000. The, the one who brought the fish and the loaves, not even part of the number, right? You're talking closer to 15, maybe 20. Like, folks, this is a huge mass of people that are following along. And here's my question to think critically about. Are you telling me that out of 15,000 people, this young boy is the only one who brought anything to eat? You're tell, that, that's your go-to. That's your logical expectation that one boy... Not even mentioned in the 5,000. One little boy out of 15 to 20,000 people is the only one who brought anything to eat. I'm not negating Jesus' miracle. What I'm illustrating is one boy out of 15 or 20,000, I don't care if five brought food, I don't care if 500 brought food, one little boy walks forward to offer what he has. And God uses what that one little boy had to feed everybody whether they brought food or not. Isn't that wild? I'm not negating Jesus did a miracle. I'm saying, like, picture a more likely scenario of what's taking place. They absolutely don't have enough to feed everybody. And yet the one who recognizes that what I have could be used of God, that young boy shows up and says, you can have what I have. There's a lot of questions in that of, like, did, was he offering it to Jesus and his disciples, having compassion on them? Did he have any clue that when he offered this up, or, like, this is what was here, that, that, that Jesus was going to do what he was about to do? Like, there's no telling in that. It's all supposed position, it's all curiosity, have no idea, but we know this. 15,000 people are there and one shows up to say, you can have what I have. You can have it. And Jesus takes what this young child gives him. He blesses it, he breaks it, and he provides for everyone out of it. Folks, this story and the miracle that's taking place is one that, I mean, yeah, Jesus challenges us to to minister to people and to have patience with people. Compassion was the word that was in this passage that, that Trace read. Like It's compassion that he has on them even in his time of mourning. He teaches us a bit of a lesson about what it means to, to trust him sometimes when the logistics don't seem to line up because he's about to do something and, and sometimes that's very real for our life. 
But folks, one of the, one of the things that is huge in this story is when we offer what, what we have, can you imagine how daunting it is to have a few loaves and a couple fish to offer in the midst of 15,000 people needing to eat? That's wild. You know, just imagine at what point does a rational person say, this is all I have. It's not even worth offering. It's dropping the bucket. It wouldn't even matter. It's not going to make a difference. You know what I mean? It's just so small, you know, compared to what the need is. Like, I can't do much. And yet, when that small gift is given to the hands of Jesus, Jesus takes this, blesses it, giving thanks as we read in this passage, acknowledging this as a gift, and then He breaks it to use it as He sees fit, which I think is also a very important and necessary thing for us to hear this morning, that when you offer of yourself and what you have to God, that you are offering it to Him to use however He would see fit. And God decides, Jesus decides, I'm going to break this into thousands and thousands and thousands of people, pieces to feed thousands and thousands and thousands of people. There weren't conditions or strings attached. It was just purely a gift. This is what we have because this is what this child gave. And then when that gift that was offered by this one, seemingly small, seemingly not enough, seemingly very minuscule in the scheme of the need, when that gift is offered and blessed, God gives it back out. Folks, And it, it is what provides a sense of nourishment and the example of God's love for His people in providing for them. I, I can't help in this story but to ask the question, have we found ourselves in a place where we see the little bit we have and assume that it's not enough to make a big difference? I mean, folks, you look at some of the trends that are taking place in the world around us, and when I say trends, I mean the things that we know, the absolute blaspheming of, our, of, of God, the, the making fun of and the culture that we're in, the things that we see take place that are not just gray conversations or some people are not sure about, but, but the... The, the patronizing and the glorification of things that are wretched and awful. And sometimes when we see those things take place, I would feel as my own life, I am a drop in a bucket. What can I do? And yet I hear this story and I'm reminded, God takes a drop in a bucket and nourishes and feeds everyone. You understand? So like my chore is not to ask what can I do or, or like feel inadequate or incapable. My chore is to recognize this is the business of God, so to speak. This is the nature of what God has been doing. He has taken what I might see in my human eyes as small and insignificant and making a massive difference. And so our response this morning is, God, how can you use us even in the midst of what we think is small to accomplish your will? God, we come before you this morning looking at a passage, a story that, God, yes, there's there's so many lessons and, and beautiful spaces within this text. And God, we pray this morning you might encourage us in the times when we are more likely to, to say we just need to be by ourselves to also recognize a God that from time to time needing to be by Himself was still compassionate towards the people around Him. Help us in those steps. God, help us as we think about what it means, especially at the end of the story, to be someone who feels like I don't have enough to change 20,000 people to influence or to impact 20,000 people. I mean, God, when we look at this story from a little bigger context, this story hasn't affected 20,000. It's 20 million. I mean, it's all of us who are reading the story today are influenced and impacted by a young person who decided to offer what they had. And so in response to that, God, we want to be people who offer you who we are. 
We may not see how you're going to break and use, but yet, God, we want to be people who are faithful to offer of ourselves back to you. We pray this morning, God, that you would use us however you see fit. We love you and we thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. And you are dismissed. Hello, this is Pastor Daniel Metters again. I hope this morning's message has both challenged your heart or maybe given you a word of encouragement. If you feel like you would like to reach out and maybe continue this conversation in any way, please feel free to email us at ecnradioresponse at gmail.com. We hope you are well and God bless.